0: Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at demon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission: to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki Nations with every visit. More information at abbymuseum.org.
1: WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and all over the world at WERU.org a healthy choice. The time is 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM. Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring, is up next.
2: Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we will discuss the United States Constitution and uh, how it applies, or if it applies, to Native American people and Native tribes. <clears throat> My guest today are Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation, uh, Eric Menert, uh, James Campbell, host of Electronic Cottage, Dr. Darren Ranko, Chair of Native Studies and Director of the Wabanaki Center, University of Maine, Orono. <clears throat> and my special guest uh, later uh, is will be Robert uh, Mills, who was an uh, a- attorney and a professor at the uh, Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. So uh, we'll start. And uh, Darren, are you on the line?
0: I am. Good morning, Donna.
2: Good morning. Um, And uh, Judge Menard. Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. Uh, And Jim, are you there? I am. Okay. Um, Okay, Jim, let's... uh, I'm going to do something by way of introducing Jim. Uh, Now, Jim's a a long-time WERU volunteer... And he's the host of uh, Notes from the Electronic College. And uh, he's currently working with uh, the new First Amendment Museum in Augusta. And uh, Jim has been uh, interviewing people on the United States Constitution. And he he sent me an email uh, and asked if I'd be interested in uh, being interviewed on that subject. And coincidentally, I'd been thinking about the Constitution and all the things that went with it. And when he called, I basically said, sure. Um, and I met with Jim and we discussed some of the uh, issues involving the Constitution and uh, Native American people. So, uh, Jim, can you tell us about uh, your perspective um On our interview,
3: well, I can certainly tell you about my experience with it. Uh, We got together to talk, particularly about the First Amendment. And one of the things that I asked you was, when you hear the term First Amendment, what is the what is the first term that comes to mind? And you said zero, (laughs) and I said zero. talked to a couple of dozen people. I'd never heard that before. And so I said, well, zero? Why zero? And you said to me, well, the U.S. Constitution um, does not cover Native people. And I was, to say the least, astonished. Um, I have degrees in American history, and I had never heard that before. So I was I was very surprised, and I'm very interested in hearing more about that uh, because I don't know anything about it.
2: Well, I do want to ask you something, uh, Jim, and that is in, when you interview, uh, you know, United States citizens, uh, non-Native people, what's the, what do they commonly uh, say in reference to the Constitution?
3: Well, in in one way or another, most people, if I ask them to say, to describe in one word, what's the first thing that comes to mind, uh, not all, but, but many of them that I've spoken with thus far say freedom, and then they expand on that a little bit to, say, freedom of speech or freedom of religion, you know, as their own particular interests in life experience dictate. But overall, the first term that usually people say is freedom.
2: So you must have had a a specific interest uh, in this subject to take on the project of the uh, First Amendment Museum.
3: Well, the the First Amendment Museum, which will, uh, I think, Open its physical doors probably in about a year. There's a lot of renovation going on uh, to a historic house in Augusta right on State Street. <clears throat> but in the meantime, the First Amendment Museum uh, is interested in, in talking with people, particularly about their experience. And the museum is a little bit different from some others in the country that have uh, been interested in. You know the Constitution and so forth. In that, it focuses much more on people's um, experience and in living out the First Amendment, as opposed to particularly uh, understanding it in a historical context or something. So that's that's kind of the emphasis on it,
2: and the reason that's. Project is happening now is because of why?
3: Well, it it happened that this uh, that the people who got together to form form up this museum had an opportunity to um, to utilize this historic building and to build out around it. So that was certainly one emphasis, and the other is that the the first. The, the First Amendment is, um, is something that is spoken of a lot, but in terms of its actual health and the importance of it in the overall basis for democracy in America is not uh, perhaps as well understood or as um, well lived out as it might be today.
2: So your your goal is to sort of educate uh, the general public about the meaning of the Constitution and
3: well particularly the focus of this group is particularly on the First Amendment and the idea is to to educate in a sense but but much more to encourage people to actually live the First Amendment in in their own lives and to to be aware of what its protections are and then to exercise those protections because um, like anything else, if it isn't nurtured and exercised, um, it, you know, it faces a potential danger of fading in importance and it's an extremely important part of U S the U S constitution and, and the, Way that we operate our government.
2: So, just to sort of refresh uh, my memory and our listeners' memory, what are those uh, uh, points in the First Amendment? Mm
3: -hmm. Well, there are generally thought to be five freedoms the freedom of speech, the freedom to practice religion uh, as whatever religion one chooses to practice the freedom of the press uh... the freedom of assembly and the right to petition the government for the redress of grievances Um the, the first amendment also indicates that the government should not in any way create the establishment of a state religion so those are those are the key points of the first amendment and all of them are quite relevant to everyday life today.
2: Hmm. Okay. Um, now, I have uh, a couple of other people on the, of course. On the line. And yep. I'm just uh, – I'm wondering, uh, Eric or Darren, if you have any questions for Jim.
1: Jim, as I understand the, the First Amendment, the, the freedom of assembly also um, – is it your understanding that that also governs the right the freedom of association mm, yes and then freedom of association is the uh right to associate with whom you please when you please
3: yes that is that is generally um i think that's generally accepted as as part of what freedom of assembly or 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 the right of assembly means yes
1: and, and so in in the museum, are you uh, setting up separate exhibits or separate rooms for each one of the five freedoms that you discussed in uh, uh, under the first amendment
3: well the the exhibit space isn't uh, all designed yet, and there uh, there's a lot of renovation to the physical structure because it's uh it's an old building so how that is going to play out is is not yet clear, but that is certainly one of the things that has been discussed, having a particular space that focuses on each freedom. I think as in many museums, what is likely to happen is that there will be some kind of standard exhibit space and then there will be changing exhibits as well. One of the things that the museum is uh, planning to do, and that's why we're talking to a lot of different people in the state, is to build some small traveling exhibits which can go around to libraries and historical societies and so forth even before the physical building is completely finished uh, to begin encouraging discussion of the First Amendment and, and a lot of the things that... Uh, surround the First Amendment, both historically but particularly today.
1: When you say particularly today, um, are you referring to something specific?
3: Well, we we certainly have been hearing a lot um, lately uh, about should there be any sorts of limitations on, for example, freedom of speech. So... Um, what is called by some hate speech, although how you define that is an interesting question, but uh, speech that seems to attempt to denigrate other individuals or, or even other groups of individuals. Uh, we see a lot of that on social media, and uh, Congress, for example, has called in some of the heads of Uh, Facebook, for example, was probably the most well-known, to say, look, this kind of stuff shouldn't be on social media. Uh, Can't you figure out a way to take down uh, hate speech or speech which might seem to encourage uh, terrorism or things that are... um, in the view of Congress, threatening to the American way of government, and of course, that's a very unclear and, and uh, contentious kind of question, because in this country, at least historically, uh, free speech is as close to the right to free speech as as close to absolute as it any is anywhere in the world. And so some people say, well, that kind of speech just shouldn't be protected. And other people say, well, who's going to decide uh, what's hate speech today or hate speech tomorrow or speech that shouldn't be protected today and uh, tomorrow the government changes and maybe it's a different kind of speech that shouldn't be protected. So, So that's a very live subject right now.
1: Yeah, that that really calls into I, – and I don't know whether it's a true story or not, but um, I'm reminded of uh, – the, there is a, a story that Patrick Henry, uh, one of the founders, uh, was debating at uh, the House of Burgess in Virginia and they were debating whether or not uh, Virginia should support the Declaration of Independence and an individual rose to speak against – supporting the Declaration of Independence and, and people in the House of Burgess began to shout him down and, and tell him to be quiet. And Patrick Henry said, let me quote Voltaire for you all. Sir, I disagree with what you have to say, but will defend to the death your right to say it. That really is a heart and soul of the First Amendment, isn't it?
3: Well, many people think that, um, but <clears throat> others these days seem to have a, a different way of looking at that. So it's a it's a very live and a very interesting question in terms of legal uh, but, uh, legal decisions, uh, quote-unquote hate speech, as long as it is not immediately uh, physically threatening, is protected by the Constitution according to the Supreme Court. So it's interesting that <laughs> when Congress called uh, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook in, they didn't. Uh, they did. The Congress people weren't saying that Congress should somehow limit um, certain types of speech on social media, because that is probably based on historic court decisions. Probably something that Congress can't do because the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law, and, but Facebook is a private organization. And so in a, in a certain way, Congress was perhaps encouraging private organizations that run social media to do things which Congress probably couldn't do under the First Amendment, but private individuals can. And so, uh, you know, as I said, it's, it's a live issue, and it's one that's under discussion in a lot of different ways. And it's, it's one that ought to be discussed and people should be aware of and, and think about it uh, from a lot of different angles.
2: Okay. Um, Darren, uh, do you have anything?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I, mean, I kind of wanted to... Push the topic too to where I think you're going, as well, Donna. Which is, you know, the Indian Civil Rights Act of 1968. We are
2: going there, yes.
0: <laughs> as a, as a, uh, is a way to incorporate the Bill of Rights, the First Ten Amendment uh, to the Constitution, including the First Amendment, to tribal citizens of tribal governments. And um, I wonder if, in thinking about the First Amendment. And the only the major difference is that um, the Indian Civil Rights Act First Amendment version um, excludes the Establishment Clause, w- which means that Indian tribes, Indian tribal governments should establish a, a, an official religion of the, of the tribal entity. Um, and I wonder if that you know, I, I think I don't want to mess with your First Amendment, you know, museum or anything like that. I think the difference or introducing the Native experience with regard to just that element of the Indian Civil Rights Act, I think would, would be a nice opening and expose folks to a different experience with the First Amendment and, and possible issues of discussion. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there as something that is— um, for us as tribal citizens of tribal governments, we don't, that establishment uh, clause element is, is not in play.
2: Yeah, um, we we were heading in that direction, dear, and you just jumped the gun on us here. Sorry.
0: Uh, <laughs> that, that was my question, would be how to include that in a First Amendment um, museum uh, or, or way of our experience. Native people with the first
2: amendment. I, I I would almost think, and I don't know, Jim, if you think this, but I would almost think that you would have to have uh, the the uh, a bill, the Bill of Rights, the uh, the ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, and side by side with the uh, Indian Civil Rights Act to compare that.
3: Well, I certainly think uh, <clears throat> I, I certainly, as I said earlier, uh, knew nothing about this difference. And so I, I certainly think it would be a very useful thing to include in any museum. I'm certainly, um, you know, I'm, I'm not the director by a long shot or a board member or anything, but I, I certainly will have already uh, encouraged that, that fact that so few people probably even know about uh, to be something that, can be included in exhibits and and so forth, and and I think that difference is a very interesting one uh, of the establishment clause. I'm I'm not entirely sure what the rationale for that was. I don't know anything about the history of it, uh, but but I think that that would certainly be a, a very interesting uh, bit of information to to include. That's for sure. Yeah.
2: Well okay i um, just uh, keep listening Jim and, and you may get an answer to that <laughs> Uh the other uh, thing is that, we we're going yeah, to we're going to be bringing on um uh, uh, law professor uh, Robert Miller who who will I'm sure have will be able to address that too Uh so well I want to thank you Jim for uh, coming on and talking to us and uh,
3: well, I, I thank you for educating me, because, as I said, I I was particularly not uh, not at all knowledgeable about this, and I think uh, I think it's something that it's worth all of us knowing about. All
2: right. Well, thank you, and uh, good luck with your uh, your museum.
3: Well. It's not mine, but it's whatever. <laughs> it's somebody's. But thank you. That's right. Well, I, I hope I hope it's everybody's. Yeah, but, yeah me too.
2: Okay. Got Thanks it. a lot. Thank you. Okay. So um, I guess the what I was thinking, you know, when I was talking to, to Jim, when we first interviewed, and he mentioned uh, the, the Constitution, and I said zero. Uh, what I was talking about was that it that Constitution that everybody every citizen thinks uh, they're covered under Native Americans are not uh, and I and that's what I want to bring across in this show uh, so we get a few minutes before uh, Robert comes on so um uh, Eric, do you have any thoughts on that
1: uh, sure i mean, the when the Constitution was drafted it recognized right up front that um, the First Nations were separate sovereigns and that you know, the uh, federal government that was newly created had no right to dictate to um, the First Nations what the constitution of the each uh, tribe should be um, and that's that's my understanding of what happened with that but Professor Ranko do you uh, have uh, more to, to add to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, generally correct. I mean, uh, Indians, as we're referred to in the U.S. Constitution, right, where they appear three times, twice in Article One and in the 14th Amendment. And so in two of those times, were are uh, contemplated a sort of the limit of powers by the by the federal government in the, the Constitution is is uh, contemplates a uh, category of people called Indians not taxed, and so that that assumes um, a, uh, a you know kind of limit to the, the, even the U.S. government's role over um, Indians, both in uh, um, and how. We, how we would participate or not participate, that we're presumed to be not separate from the body politic of the United States um, if we're not taxed. And so that's a, it's a complicated sort of history of how different Indians become citizens. There's a law in 1924 that sort of makes the rest of Indians who were not US citizens, US citizens, against our will. Um, so there's a complicated kind of back and forth but it's that sort of Indians-not-tax uh, um, language is a really important part of presuming that we are separate. Um, but that separateness, you know, we, we can read it or understand it as sovereignty or independence, um, but it's also uh, brought forward in different ways through, um, and contemplated through the doctrine of Christian discovery, which has a, uh, a formulation around racism, um, so there's this Indians not tax kind of has also this racism element to it and a form of wardship that kind of is enacted, um, through other kinds of laws and other principles. But what it does give is, uh, and this is where, uh, also in Article one, the Indian Commerce Clause is, uh, that says the federal government has the unique role and responsibility in dealing with Indian, uh, tribes. Uh, through the through the commerce clause, so this separateness is obviously contemplated in the, the U.S. Constitution of us as uh, Native people, but I think it also, given the context of how courts understand those um, that separateness, uh, some and the larger context of racism and the doctrine of Christian discovery, we have um, it also overlaid with uh, racism and. Uh, an inability of us as Native people to be recognized uh, either as property owners or as having a full sovereign uh, kind of government um, on our own outside the recognition of the United States. Um, And then lastly, I will say that uh, indirectly Indians, I think, for, for those people interested in the sort of federal law side of the relationship with Indians is that Article 6 also talks about treaties doesn't mention Indians uh, directly, but Article 6 has treaties as the supreme law of the land uh, in the United States, which also is a really important element of us uh, as Native people maintaining our rights in relationship with, with the uh, federal government.
2: Eric, you have some comments?
1: Um, I mean, um I think um, I agree wholeheartedly with what Professor Ranko had to say. I think the, the challenge that has been with uh, the Bill of Rights is that it, when it was originally contemplated – as I understood as originally contemplated, um, the the federals were not going to allow or not going to try and impose on First Nations the Bill of Rights and therefore the constitution does not run to tribal lands. There is no – the constitution has no role – In the lands of the First Nations, um, the Indian Civil Rights Act of of 68, as Professor Ranko discussed earlier, is what establishes a number of rights with regards to um, – well, uh, mirrors several parts of the constitution, though not identical as, as has been discussed. I think that absolutely what has occurred is while the the founders may have recognized up front that they didn't have authority, they rapidly tried to usurp authority uh, through court cases and uh, uh, other behaviors, uh, racist behaviors.
2: Yeah, and I do want to say, you know, uh, Darren, you mentioned the Article 6 and the, the treaties are the supreme law of the land. it strikes me that uh, at that time, there were many treaties, and most of those treaties were with Indian tribes. Uh, okay, so right now, I believe I have uh, Professor Miller on the line.
4: Yes, you do. Good morning.
2: Good morning, and thank you for getting up so early.
4: <laughs> the sun <laughs> is up. I should be, too.
2: Yeah, it's 730 in Portland, Oregon, right? <laughs> yes. Okay, uh, just let me introduce you here. Uh, uh, Professor Miller... Um, Is a professor at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University and the faculty director of the Rosette LLP American Economic Development Program. He was appointed in June 2016 to the Navajo Nation Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Bob was elected to memberships in the American Law Institute in 2012 and the American Philosophical Society in 2014. Uh, graduated from Lewis and Clark Law School, and uh, you graduated cum laude, is that right?
4: Uh, Magna
2: cum laude. Magna cum laude, right, okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay, and Bob is the interim chief justice for the Pasquayaki Tribe Court of Appeals and an appellate judge for courts of appeals on the Grand, is that, I don't know how to pronounce that, Rond Tribe? Yes. Uh, and Northwest Intertribal Court System, and has written dozens of articles, books, editorials, and book chapters on Indian law issues, and I understand you've written some on how the Native American, uh, how the Constitution affects Native Americans. And, yes, uh,
4: and I've written on tribal constitutions, too. There are about 200 tribes in the United States that have their own constitutions. Well, there. good. Then
2: we'll be talking to you further at some other point.
4: <laughs> okay, great. Uh,
2: all right. So now that we have you on, online here, um, can you just fill us in on the uh, – I know you, you wrote – I was looking at your article that you wrote back in 2006 – on American Indians and the United States Constitution, uh, and you you fill us in a bit on the on the historical part of that. So, can you you talk to that a bit?
4: Yes, I've been listening to the show. Sounds like uh, you and the other guests have already mentioned the times that tribes and Indians are mentioned in the Constitution. But it's interesting why they were. And in fact, American Indian nations had a great impact on the form of government that we even have today. I mean, I think everyone knows that we formed the Continental Congress in the fall of 1774 to fight the revolution. And that government never had a written document. So it just, it just operated pursuant to informal procedures. Then in 1781 we adopted the Articles of Confederation, and that had a provision in it about tribes. Uh, Article 9 said that only the Congress was supposed to deal with the tribes, but then it had two big caveats, and the states used those caveats to uh, engage in dealings with tribes. Uh, Some of the original states were signing treaties with tribes, and primarily New York, South Carolina, and Georgia caused wars with tribes. And a large reason we have the Constitution we do today is because people like James Madison and others said we need a Congress that has... We need a government, a federal national government that has complete control over Indian affairs to exclude the states. So one of the prime motivating factors was for the federal government to exclude states from dealing with the Indian nation. And so James Madison wrote that famous clause that someone was just referring to, the Commerce Clause. And we, in the practice Indian law, we call this the Indian Commerce Clause, not necessarily the Interstate Commerce Clause. And its primary motive is to make it absolutely certain that only Congress has control and uh, any right to deal with the Indian nation's. So the Supreme Court has interpreted that provision exactly that way, and in our government, in our form of government, the states are to have no relations with Indian nations. I've been to Australia several times for work and stuff, and and they had originally set up just the opposite form of government there. In Australia, the national government had no dealings with the Aborigine peoples, and instead it was the states and the territories there that had responsibility. Here we adopted just the opposite philosophy.
2: I wonder why that is. I mean, you, you know, we've got colonial, we're both colonial, right?
4: Both. Mm-hmm.
2: So why did they think that was a better way to address that?
4: I do. I would be just guessing about there. Here in the United States, we did it because the states caused problems and wars for the national government with the nation, the Indian nation. And so the United States did it. In fact, we copied, Donna, the very reason that we, the King of England adopted what's called the Royal Proclamation in 1763 was to try to keep the individual colonies from dealing with the Indian nation. The King, King George III uh, thought that the colonies had literally caused the French and Indian War from 1754 to 1761, and so adopted this Royal Proclamation, which is still the law in Canada, as a matter of fact, uh, we, of course, partly had our Revolutionary War because our colonies so objected to the powers that the King took to himself in the Royal Proclamation. But it's very interesting that 20 years later, once we are the United States and was trying to deal with the Indian nations and keep the states out of that business, we adopted a resolution in September of 1783 that is almost a word-for-word copy for the King's Royal Proclamation from 20 years earlier. So. Kind of ironic.
1: Yeah. Th- that proclamation limited um, the colonists' growth to everything east. Is that the one that limited the, the growth to east of the Alleghenies?
4: Alice, Appalachians. Appalachians.
1: The, yep. The yep, East of the Appalachians. King,
4: the British colonists were not to cross the Allegheny or Appalachian mountains without the permission of the United States, uh, the King of England, and they were absolutely not to purchase land out there. Now, I heard some of you referring to the Doctrine of the Discovery. There's a fantastic sentence out of the Royal Proclamation that shows the king understood what the doctrine of discovery was and the rights he claimed in the lands west of the Alleghenies and Appalachians. And I, I can almost quote it for you, but the reason he said his colonists could not cross the mountains and buy the lands from the Indians out there, he said, because those lands are reserved unto me, although I have not yet purchased them. So that is a classic definition of the doctrine of discovery and the preemption right that European nations thought they had over the Indian nation.
2: And I guess what's so valuable about controlling that the Indian lands was the resources on those lands. Is that right?
4: Of course. And then if you had the sole right to buy them, you know what that does to the value of land. If somebody has only one seller, I mean only one possible purchaser, there's not to... Not a very good bargaining position, not a very good price. So the king, and, and still the United States, that that principle is still the law in the United States today. It's in 25 United States Code, Section 177, which our very first Congress, under that new power that it had under the Indian Commerce Clause, Congress adopted a statute that is still on the books today. Barely The wording has barely changed a little bit in 240 years. And the tribes and nations and bands of Indians had no right to sell their lands to anyone, not even to the state, unless it's done under a treaty session conducted by the United States. And that provision is still law today. Also, it comes from the Doctrine of Discovery. It also comes from the King's Royal Proclamation of 1763. So it shows how law had developed, how history had developed, and how the United States was organizing its relationship with the Indian nation.
2: So th- there's a, a a Treaty of Westphalia. Does that lay any groundwork for these treaties that the, the the crown had with the the tribes?
4: I'm no expert on the Treaty of Westphalia. That's the 1648 treaty, correct, where the, yes. what state sovereignty was in Europe was first sort of recognized? Right. Yes, I've never done any research into that, and what I just told you is about as much as I know about it, so I, I don't really know if that impacted how the United how the United States, or even before that, how the English, the French, and the Spanish, how they were dealing with Europe, with Indian nations. I think when they came across the country, you know, they looked for leaders. They expected there to be some kind of a king or a prince. They wanted to talk to someone they thought was in charge. They wanted Peace. They wanted to buy land. They wanted to do what they wanted. So treaty-making for Europeans was about establishing colonies, hopefully avoiding war. Uh, you know, the Jamestown colony was very vulnerable, so hopefully they wanted to stay friendly with the local Indians. So uh, treaty-making served a lot of purposes for Europeans.
2: Yeah, and I think at, at one point the, uh, the Indians outnumbered them, so that was... Oh.
4: Absolutely. I was reading recently that the tribes in that area, the Powhatan Confederacy, did attack Jamestown, attack maybe in its first year of existence, and killed nearly half the people. But as more Englishmen came, and when they had guns and ammunition, uh, and then as diseases affected the local native peoples, pretty soon the English outnumbered us.
2: Darren. Do you have any questions about this?
0: No, I think, I mean, this is a, like, master class. Um, professor Miller <laughs> <Excellent>. is obviously <laughs> uh, a really important expert in this area, I, I, and, I and I really thank him for, for, for joining us um, in the discussion. Uh, I think, uh, for me, that, you know, that language of Indians not taxed is, is so interesting and complex as well, like. Um, how we understand that as both separateness but in a way because it's contemplated in the Constitution not entirely separate and I think that's where it becomes very tricky where especially in places like the state of Maine where uh, our state constitution also has this this term of Indians not taxed originally had that um, in terms of uh, the electors uh, in, the, in the state constitution as well, and I, I just wonder in terms of the, like a deeper reading, Professor Miller, like how how we should understand that that turn of phrase, Indians not taxed. Well,
4: I put a positive spin on that. I heard you you guys discussing this uh, earlier. Um, I think what that phrase means, and and here's you may find this interesting. I have read the the minutes, the notes of the Constitutional Convention made October 1787. Like I said, James Madison wrote the Interstate Commerce Clause provision. There was very little discussion on it, and they amended just a few little words. There's also no discussion at all on what that phrase, Indians not taxed, means and what it meant to the Founding Fathers. So we're left to kind of just guess. And so I put a couple of positive spins on it. One, the Founding Fathers absolutely recognized tribes as governments. Indian nations were, yes, nations. You dealt with nations through treaty-making. And that's how Europeans and then the colonies and then our states and then the United States always dealt with the nations, was as governments, sovereign entities that controlled territory and had citizens that they had some kind of governmental control over. So when it said that We were not citizens in the First Amendment, and then when the 14th Amendment in 1868 was enacted, we still were called not U.S. citizens, not state citizens, unless we paid taxes. So I see two positive things from that. One, the reason that the Founding Fathers said that, and then the Founding Fathers of the 14th Amendment, because they recognized Indians were citizens of their own nations, and they were not United States citizens. But if they had – and so here's how I read this and others read that, so I'm not making this up or I'm not the first person to have said what I'm going to say now. But unless an Indian had so turned their back on their own government that they were now living in a town, paying taxes to the local town or county or state, then they were not considered federal citizens or state citizens. So I take those two provisions as actually being beneficial and and recognizing the sovereignty and existence of the Indian Nation.
2: Hmm. Very interesting, right? Yeah, that's a that is a very a, a, a good point, and it and it makes sense.
4: Well, and I find it very. I was unaware of the Maine State Constitution. <laughs> I know you guys were part of Massachusetts till what eighteen twenty. Yes. And but I am surprised that that language is in your treaty or your state constitution, and would be interested in reading more about that later. Because yes, according to national federal policy in the United States and the Interstate Commerce Clause slash Indian Commerce Clause, states weren't supposed to be involved with tribes.
2: (laughs) Exactly, and that's why we—that's where the land claims settlement came in, and that's that's why they settled because of the 1790. Uh, uh, what is it, a treaty or something that. Non alienation. Non
1: yes. alienation act.
4: Yes, that's the statute that I was just referring to, 25 U.S.C., section 177, which was Congress enacted July 22, 1790. That's the very provision that the attorney that represented the tribe in Maine and the argument that you all made that, yes, led to your land settlements and the other tribes, the Rhode Island settlements, I believe maybe the Catawba settlement in South Carolina also. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, Oneida oh, I think too. Yeah. Pardon, I, I couldn't hear you. Oneida in New York, I believe, used that as well. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh,
1: what I'm very interested in, Professor Miller, is uh, how does how does the the Indian Commerce Clause get reconciled with when you look at the Settlement Acts, um, the Settlement Acts? Congress says it's going to do certain things, but then leaves the, the implementation of those acts to the states. So it essentially defers back to the states some authority, and, and that's been a significant issue here in the state of Maine uh, with the well, Maine Implementing Act. And I, it, it strikes me that if, uh, it should be more uh, binary than that. If Congress has that power, how is it giving it up to the states?
4: Well, this is, the, this is one aspect of that power. And this is, the Supreme Court has read the Indian Commerce Clause, the Interstate Commerce Clause, far broader than the very terms of it. Because all it says it's about is commerce with the tribes, that Congress has the authority. And, and I, as I said earlier, this was to exclude the states from the Indian business, Indian affairs. So it, it, it's only about doing business with tribes. But the Supreme Court has read the provision very broadly, and the phrase that the court has developed is the word plenary power, that Congress has plenary power uh, against the Indian nations, And so that word, is while it's not absolute, it's close to that. P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, if you've never heard the word before. This is the only place I've really ever heard it used. So Congress can do what it wants in Indian affairs, and when it chooses to give authority to states over tribes, the Supreme Court affirms that. So during the termination era of federal Indian policy in the 1950s, Congress was trying to force responsibilities onto states to deal with tribes. If you know Public Law 280, a lot of states were forced to take criminal jurisdiction on reservations. And yet the feds handed the states no money to do that very work. The Indian Health Service was taken out of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and put into what was then HEW, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. So the Congress was trying to save itself some money and was trying to get out of the Indian Affairs. So the Supreme Court would say, I guess, that that was within the plenary power of Congress to do what it wants to Indian
1: nation and Indian people. I'm struck by that delegation of authority to the states when the, the, the founders, as you've pointed out, specifically said that was the problem.
4: Yes. Yeah. Well, I agree. And if you know much about criminal jurisdiction issues in Indian country, those states that were handed that criminal jurisdiction over Indians on reservations or in Indian country... Since they weren't handed the money, uh, criminal jurisdiction in Indian country in the PL-280 states is a mess. I think most people agree the states do not enforce the law, do not want to spend the money uh, enforcing the law and adding courts and judges. And so I think there are a lot of reservations that think there's an absence of law and order, especially in those very states that the state was given authority over. That's how come you get a law like VAWA and you get... The tribes to advocate for Congress to give us some jurisdiction over non Indian defendants in Indian country who are abusing you know tribal citizens
2: you uh you mentioned your surprise about that language being in the uh main constitution um, that uh main constitution was basically language that was just mirrored from the uh, articles of separation with Massachusetts so that Massachusetts, their involvement with this uh, with creating the Constitution, it just seems like they probably just borrowed that language and from that, I would think.
4: Well, I would like to learn more about that. I, just, I know nothing about that. I do know that Massachusetts, there were some lawsuits in the 70s and 80s and a couple states or just sort of odd twists of history, have ended up being involved with Indian relations for some tribes. And I these are some lawsuits I've not studied, but I just know about them sort of vaguely. And I do think that Massachusetts is one of those states that had certain rights and authority in some tribe's relations. I, maybe the Fed's considered that the Fed didn't recognize such a tribe and so they just left it up to the state. and i'm taking a wild guess but that's maybe how that came to happen in massachusetts and so maybe when you guys split away that same idea uh applied to now the new state of Maine. you guys know i'm certain you are the most unique situation where you have a delegate in the state legislature right uh
2: penobscot nation uh withdrew their delegate Permanently,
4: permanently. Permanent. But you did until just pretty recently, correct? Yes,
2: I believe it was twenty fifteen, May twenty sixth. Yeah. yeah,
4: yeah. I'm unaware of any other state like that, so that is a unique situation that I wish I knew more about. Maybe you'll have a show on it one day, and I can listen in. <laughs> well,
2: Well, uh, we do have shows. We've got like seventy shows, so we've got it's on archive. <laughs> you just have to okay check it out. I um, will. Yeah,
1: um. I had a, a question for Professor Miller. Sure, time. Professor Miller, um, recognizing that that the Constitution does not apply on uh, tribal reserves, and that the Indian Civil Rights Act does, the Constitution has the one of the mechanisms for enforcement of the Constitution uh, against states and as well as the federal government is uh, title 42 USC section 1983 the federal civil rights act that does not apply it seems to me to to first nations and as an enforcement mechanism for the indian civil rights act and i was wondering if you knew of any mechanism that does apply for enforcing the civil rights indian civil rights act on tribal lands
4: the after the indian civil rights act was enacted in 1968 federal courts were applying it and allowing plaintiffs to bring lawsuits in federal court. Uh, Immediately, plaintiffs started filing against uh, the very first case, in fact, was an attorney at the Navajo Nation who had been excluded from the the nation's uh, reservation. And he brought a lawsuit. So the federal courts were developing what are called implied causes of action. While Congress didn't say anything, the courts thought, They thought they had to develop a federal court lawsuit to create a remedy for this act. So it took over a decade until the Santa Clara Pueblo v. Martinez case in 1978 and the United States Supreme Court said there is no federal cause of action for alleged violation of the Indian Civil Rights Act. So the only place a plaintiff can bring such a suit is in a tribal court and a tribal court system. So 42 U.S.C. 1983 doesn't apply. So uh, there just has to be – that's a law that applies to how you sue states, etc. for violation of federal um, civil rights. So a person has to just bring a lawsuit. Uh, you can title it by whatever you want. You can make it for declaratory judgment, which is when a court just makes a statement, yes or no, whether your rights were violated. You could bring an injunction – action against a tribal leader that you thought was infringing on your rights as stated in the indian civil rights act some tribal courts have held that sovereign immunity still protects the tribe from that action i think those courts are in the minority now and most tribal courts would hold that they have to hear such a case of an allegation against some tribal official or some tribal employee that they were violating your rights under the Indian Civil Rights Act. Uh, One tribe that I'm a justice for, the Grand Ronde tribe here in Oregon, right in their constitution it says that uh, our court is to enforce the Indian Civil Rights Act, so the Grand Ronde tribe constitution explicitly gives jurisdiction for our court to hear Suit against the tribe for the Indian Civil Rights Act. I do not know how many of the 200 and some tribal constitutions have a provision like that. Some courts have had to have their own Marbury v. Madison decision. If you guys know that case from 1804 when Chief Justice John Marshall, probably his most famous opinion to tell you the truth, Marbury v. Madison, that the federal courts decide what the Constitution means, and they they have the power to hear cases like that. Some tribes have had to have their own Marbury v. Madison case in which the tribal court had to decide whether there was an implied cause of action to protect rights under the Indian Civil Rights Act. So, there, like I say, there's a bit of a split. I think most tribal courts will hear these cases, and that there's only a minority of cases that say that sovereign immunity protects tribes from an Indian civil rights cause of action.
2: So, when we look at the uh, United States Constitution uh, and Native American tribes and Native American individuals, uh, the, that Constitution was not was not written to protect Native American tribes or con- or with them in consideration. Is that correct?
4: Absolutely. We were excluded from that. The Indian nations were seen to be external, to have a separate sovereignty. So again, I, I read even the Commerce Clause. Well, in fact, if you read the Commerce Clause, it says, Congress shall have the authority to control, to regulate commerce with the foreign nation, comma, among the several states, comma, and with the Indian tribe. That's, a very, that's the only reference to Indian tribe in the Constitution, express reference but that's a very important statement to rank us as something similar to the foreign nations and the 13 original states. So the Founding Fathers understood the tribes as government, and so that, that's a pretty important reference. But yes, we were not American citizens. We were not citizens of the states, and so in essence we were foreign entities, foreign people. I uh, heard one of your uh, people on the show mention earlier... That we, uh, all Indians were made citizens in 1924. About 40% of Indians were already citizens by then because of other statutes. But yes, in 1924, people like my mother were made citizens of the United States. But many of the states have rejected for decades that Indians were state citizens. And in fact, since we're, you're from Maine, I believe Indians in Maine were not allowed to vote until 1967. That's what I've read. In state elections, Indians were not allowed to vote in Arizona, where I teach now, and New Mexico until 1948 and 1956. So again, I try to put a positive spin and a smile on that, and I say, well, the states thought we were citizens only of our own nation and not of the state. So I put a little positive spin on that, too. (laughs)
2: Okay. Um, Anybody have any last questions? We only got a couple more minutes here, I think. Uh, Yeah, I get about three or four minutes. So anything uh, you got, Eric, you want to ask? No? Darren, what about you?
0: No, I I mean, this has been a really advanced discussion, and I really appreciate um, being included in it. I, I guess my by one thing, which is, I think about the average listener out there that, um, you know, they often see us as Native people as sort of being granted certain things, but of course we pre-existed the Constitution, we have, we were our own nations. we were our own governments, and so much of what, you know, makes us tribal nations is the fact that you know we have these extra constitutional or pre-constitutional rights um, and um, they're reflective of our own cultural and and political traditions and I just I just want to make sure that that's sort of understood like so, so little of what we have retained uh, um, you know actually none of it has been granted to us but it's really about what we've retained through the last 240 250 years I just want to re articulate that in a slightly different vein, that our rights are, are, are pre-existing, the, the creation of the United States.
2: Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Professor Miller, for, for being with us. I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, you've really uh, helped us to understand uh, a lot of this really complicated uh, issue here. So. Thank
4: you for having me on the show. I appreciate it.
2: And we'll be in touch for our future events. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, I'm your host, Anna Loring. You've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from the CD Dreamwalk. Our engineer is Amy Brown. And tune in again next month for Wabanaki Windows.